Uh, imagine you show up on your first day of work, really excited about your new job, and they say, great, we're glad you're here. Here's some equipment for you, some resources, and boom. Here's this massive binder full of pages and pages of diagrams and charts. Thankfully, mostly pictures, right? not a lot of words. But it describes to you in a stack about yay big of how you need to handle the various situations you will face on the job as you join this team. That was the case, it's now changed for NFL players because they have tablets now and you don't see how long and how many pages it would be. But they used to print out these massive binders bigger than, if you remember phone books, the Manhattan Yellow Pages, okay? This is big fat binder of all of the plays that you need to know as an NFL player. One former player who was injured and could not play football anymore then went on to be an astronaut with NASA, and he said, learning the playbook as a player was really helpful for me then to learn how to be an astronaut and all of the different commands and procedures and all that we needed to follow as we did our role. So as we turn now today to Mark chapter 2, we're looking at verses 23 to 28. Uh, we're skipping verses 18 to 22, Lord willing, we'll look at them in a few weeks. But we're focused today on Mark 2, 23 to 28, where Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees, by the religious leaders, for what his disciples are doing in breaking, they say, the law and the tradition and the commandments. And the passage is about what you do or don't do on the Sabbath, on the instituted day of rest. And it's about more than that. It's about even how we understand what we're supposed to do. Is the Bible, in other words, this, this big playbook of rules and regulations that, that we go to to understand what we do in this situation, what we do in this situation, not unlike that NFL playbook, or like a space shuttle astronaut's commands and procedures, or like some sort of law book? Is that what Scripture is? And as we look at this passage, that seems to be one approach. It's understandable because our world is, is full of uncertainty, right? There's a lot of risk. Uh, there's a lot of things that we don't know what to do. And wouldn't it be great if we knew, okay, well, this is the play and the formation, and here's my part. But we face peer pressure and tradition and all kinds of things. And, and, and the question is, well, how, how do we know what to do? How do we have a clear conscience and confidence to face life. Jesus says we don't have a playbook. Uh, we have something even better. Would you read with me here in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, and see what we have to give us hope as we make decisions in a challenging world. This is God's word, Mark 2, 23 and following. And it happened that he, Jesus, was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, <clears throat> and his disciples began to make their way along while picking heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? 
And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is God's word. Lord, would you meet us here today, we pray. Uh, Lift our eyes to your throne of grace and mercy. Change and transform our hearts that we might know you and become more like Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. So I do have a a cold. I did have a COVID test this morning. I don't have COVID, uh, Lord willing. Uh, just so you know, but I, I, <clears throat> I am battling here, so bear with me as I clear my throat and drink lots of water. Uh, in our passage today, there's another controversy, and we did skip, Lord willing, we'll come back to the verses we skipped here in chapter 2, uh, looking at fasting. But at the beginning of chapter 2, we saw just recently that there's a controversy about whether Jesus can forgive sins, and is he blaspheming or not as he heals someone. Then the the passage after that, right before our passage, is, is a controversy about fasting. Why aren't they fasting? And why are those people fasting? And now it's this controversy about the Sabbath, a God-ordained day of rest. And the controversies are all between Jesus and or his disciples and the religious leaders, the experts in the Bible or the law in those days. And the question here is, you know, How do you figure out what's right and wrong? How do you keep the day of rest? What can you do or not do is essentially what they're asking and saying to Jesus and his disciples, you guys are doing the wrong thing. You're doing what's not lawful. And as we think about that, you know, there's lots of challenges for us reading the Bible today and applying it to our lives. And people say, you know, well, that's for then and these things are different now and Uh, what do we do? And we have people saying this and that. And and how do we understand? What is our hope for understanding the Bible and applying it to our lives? So it doesn't just fill up our heads and maybe give us some trivia, but actually makes a difference in our lives, which is its purpose, to give us a fuller, abundant life. And so that's the question we're going to wrestle with today. As we look at this passage, what's our hope for understanding and applying it to our life? Because the Bible, Jesus says, is not a playbook. It's not a rule book. It's not a law book. It's something else. And our hope is somewhere else. So let's walk through this issue of the Sabbath and see if we can't bring it together to help our understanding of how we can understand the Bible. First of all, to recognize with the Sabbath, what Jesus is saying, first of all, is that the Sabbath, uh, this rule, this law, is a good gift from God. It's a good gift made for you, Jesus says. Look at verse 27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. 
The Sabbath was made for human beings. The Greek word there for man is anthropos, which can mean a, a male, but it also means a, a, in general humanity. Uh, what we used to refer to as mankind is the idea here as it says man. It means humans, human beings, humanity, all of us. That the Sabbath, Jesus says, was made for human beings. Human beings were not made for the Sabbath. That, that word Sabbath is a Hebrew word, Shabbat, which has to do with ending or stopping. Uh, we see it in Genesis chapter 8. When God says after the flood that seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not stop. That's the same word. They won't cease. They will continue. Job's three friends, we read in, in Job chapter 32, they stop answering Job because they think he is self-righteous. And they're not going to waste their time on him. That, that's the sense, the same word here, Sabbath. Shabbat. It means ending, stopping, ceasing. But in our context, when Jesus is talking with these religious leaders, the sense is that day of rest in particular that God instituted and is in particular enshrined in the Ten Commandments and repeated numerous times in the first five books of the Bible, in the Pentateuch, where it says that you have six days to work and one day to rest, where there is this rhythm of rest and work that God has established, that we are a part of by being in creation itself. That the commands that are articulated, Exodus chapter 23, verse 12, and 31, 17, for example, as well as Exodus 29 to 11, they, they often speak of the pattern of work and rest, emphasizing the fact that that you need to rest and stop doing the things you normally do and the work that you're normally doing so that you can be refreshed, so that the people who live in your house can be refreshed, so your animals can be refreshed. In other words, the pattern, rhythm of life is such that you're not to work all the time. That rest is necessary. And God loves us enough that He actually gives us a command. So we're, we're clear on that. Hey, it's good I will require you to stop working because you need to not work all the time. Work and rest is the rhythm. And the commandments link that rest, and better to phrase it as that stopping from work, to creation itself. Not just to the commands and the laws given at Mount Sinai, but in fact to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where God worked in creation, made this, made that, made this, then put this, then put that, then put this in the place. Six days, and on the seventh day, He, he rested. Uh, it's that word again, Shabbat. He stopped. He stopped working. But he made that a whole day, emphasizing that it's a pattern, it's a rhythm built into creation itself that we not work all the time, that you should have some rest, and a whole day of it is best. And ironically, in Jesus' day, that day of rest had become a lot of work. 
figuring out what you could do and not do, making sure you didn't do that and you did do that, that you could prepare ahead of time and, and make sure you don't break that. They had boiled it down to numerous different sub-laws, including, you know, you could go on a Sabbath day 1,999 steps. But if you went one more than that, that was a sin. And so maybe you have to then count your steps as you're wandering around. Do I make sure they didn't have Fitbits and, you know, Apple Watches and step trackers, right? So you had to count and, and uh, numerous other rules like that of things you could do and make sure that you don't break the Sabbath so that it's no longer the rhythm of rest that follows after work, but another duty and obligation and chore for you to keep. It sounds like to me more work than rest. More work than any other day of the week because you know at least on the other days if you're working, you don't got to worry about it. That's what happens when we lose the reality that the Sabbath is a good gift from God, that you're not meant to work nonstop. You need this rhythm of rest. The face value of of, of the Sabbath was giving you that rest, that physical rest, but it actually pointed beyond that even. And so if you lose the idea of the physical rest and that pattern built into creation, you're going to miss not only the rhythm of rest, but you're going to miss the reminder that's built into the Sabbath. It's a reminder of your need. If you look at the commands for the Sabbath and even the rest that God did on the seventh day, the ceasing from work, in that context, it's all very good. Right, that we should have a rhythm of work and rest. That's God's design that we broke. And as Adam and Eve stopped obeying God and they took of the fruit that He commanded them not to take, as they decided to go their own way, and essentially they, they broke this idea of dependence upon God. Which is really what a day of rest is about. It's about, are you going to trust me, God says, that I'll provide for you? The manna that came down from heaven was like that, right? You collect it six days and he'll give a double portion so that you don't need to go gather on the seventh. And that's what he did, right? That's the sense of rest. Are you going to depend upon God? Do you recognize that you are needy? That yes, you work, but no, you're not God. You can't keep working indefinitely. You need to rest. And so the Sabbath was a reminder not, not only of that rhythm, it's built into creation and your need for it, but your ultimate neediness. A reminder of your neediness. In fact, when the people of God had rebelled, coming out of slavery in Egypt, uh, they met at Mount Sinai, God came down and they got the Ten Commandments Inscribed, and then they decided they're not going to go in the promised land like God said. God judged them. They wandered around after the 40 years as they're on the cusp of going into the promised land again, right? Or entering it for the first time. They're there, and Moses reminds them of all the things that God did, of how things had played out, and that's the book of Deuteronomy. And he restates the Ten Commandments very much like in Exodus 20. But interestingly, In Deuteronomy 5, he talks about the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. 
in verses 13 and following. But in, in, in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 5, he says, The seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. Don't do any work, you or your son, your daughter, your male servant, female servant, your ox, your donkey, your cattle, your sojourner who stays with you. So your male servant, your female servant might rest as well as you. Then he says in Deuteronomy 5.15, this is why to keep the Sabbath, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. The Sabbath, as we understand it today and receive it even as they did back then, is not just a part of the created rhythm that God put into all the universe, but it's actually a reminder of redemption. That we need not only to rest from our work physically, but that we need to rest from our work in trying to save ourselves. That only God ultimately can rescue us. Like He did His people of old out of slavery in Egypt. They never could have done that on their own. And He hammered that into Egypt and he brings it to mind in their hearts as he reiterates the command to rest. The book of Hebrews develops this in Hebrews chapter 4 as well. This, that there's a rest. That that physical rest is good. And that there is a spiritual rest that we need to understand that the Sabbath is always pointing to. It's a good gift about the rhythm and it's a reminder of redemption. And that leads to our, to our next point here. That... That not only is the Sabbath a good gift, but it's a good gift from a good God. It is a good gift from a good God. And, and contrastingly, Sabbath rules and, 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 and rules in general make for a bad God. That's what Jesus is facing here. Look at verse 23, back to the beginning of the passage. It happened... That he, Jesus, was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And it was okay, by the way, to pick grain in people's fields. The problem wasn't they're stealing from somebody or something like that. It's not their property. Right? The, the problem in the eyes of the Pharisees was picking grain on the Sabbath. So verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful? On the Sabbath. And they have some basis for this question in the law itself. In Exodus 34, verse 21, God is very explicit. He says, in plowing time and in harvest, keep the Sabbath. Right? So when you're preparing the ground for the, the seed to be planted, preparing the soil for the seed to be planted, and then when you're harvesting it later on, those are time-sensitive things you got to do. You feel the sense of urgency. I don't know where that thing went. Uh, that, all those things, right? That doesn't change the fact that I still want you to rest. Right? It's the view that it's a good command. That no matter what else is going on, that I can trust God to set aside this time to rest. And he says, so that's important. And from that idea of resting during uh, seed time, plowing time, and harvest, they extrapolate well, then it's, it's never okay to pick any grains on the Sabbath. That, that's forbid, forbidden. Whether you've got like a whole-scale farming operation or it's just you walking along picking some grain and breaking apart so you might eat it and be nourished. 
You know, this is, by the way, a very common, perhaps the best way to become a legalist if that's what you're interested in, which no one ever is really, right? But this is the way you become one. You take a command and make it absolute and disregard any situations or cases that might alter it and impact your understanding of how that law applies. The, the best way to become a legalist is to say, here's the law, and you will always apply it exactly the same way. Whether you are a, a, an Israelite under Moses in the 1500s BC, or whether you're an Israelite facing Jesus in the first century AD, or whether you're a Christian today, you always take that command and apply it exactly the same way. That's not the way it works. That is the path to legalism. It does. What it does, though, is it kind of makes life maybe a little easier where you don't have to do the hard work. I, I literally was talking to a, a fellow pastor in, in another city when I was ministering there years ago. You don't know them. Uh, and, and we were talking about how hard it is to handle the situation of divorce and, you know, when, when it seems like how much investigation you do before someone could be an officer or something like that. And he said this, straight-faced. So we just said, you can never do any ministry uh, if you've ever been divorced. And I'm like, well, what if like, you were an unbeliever and you got divorced before you were saved? You know, these things pass through my mind, but he just had simplified it, right? It's very effective and efficient, and it cuts down a ton of debate and all that, but it's not the way God intends for us to take His Word. It's actually challenging to apply God's Word. It is the hardest part. Uh, if you're a Bible teacher or a preacher or anything else, it's probably the hardest part. Okay, what does this mean for me today, for us today? And it's so much easier to just say, keep the Sabbath then. And be Little House on the Prairie, right? Where you can't do anything else. You just have to read your Bible all day. I don't think that's what God meant. It's challenging. And the, 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 so the temptation is for us to become legalistic in our understanding because there's uncertainty and challenge. And what we do is we make then the law become our God. That we bow to the law and not the lawgiver. That we take what is good and make it our master rather than the God who is good and wants what's best for us. Who uses uh, all of His Word for our good, including the fact that we have to wrestle with it. You know, there, there's a reason God does not give us all little mini pillars of fire like He gave His people coming out of Egypt, right? There's a reason that, that God doesn't just show up and literally Jesus stand there in front of you, which seems like, you know, could be possible at least multiple ways. You know, He puts us in a community and He gives us His Word and His Spirit that we would together wrestle through all the circumstances of life, in life. If God had given to us a book that would literally cover every circumstance at the minute level, like an NFL playbook, it would be way bigger than this. It would still be being written. 
But that's not what God has given us. He's given us His Word and His Spirit and each other that we can wrestle through understanding it together. And He he implicitly points all this out by going to the Bible in verse 25. Jesus says to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? Here's, Here's a key to understanding how you apply the Bible to life. You take, okay, here's my initial thought, I shouldn't do that. And you go, well, what else does the Bible say about it? And Jesus says, well, if that's what the Bible says, then what about what it says here? In this passage that we, would, we know as 1 Samuel 21, 1-6, when David was in need and his companions became hungry, verse 26 continues, how he, David, entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest's. And he also gave it to those who were with him. There's a lot that could be said here. We're not going to be able to cover it all. But the basic scenario is this. Saul is king of Israel. God has come to David and said, you're going to be king. Saul is not. Uh, David had that interaction with Saul's son, Jonathan, where they were talking about what's going on with Saul, you know. And Jonathan says, the Lord has made, made you to be king. You know, I, I'm willing to accept that, basically, 1 Samuel chapter 20. And so they come to the conclusion that God is sending David away from Saul. And that's what happens here in chapter 21. David is on the run from Saul, and he goes to the tabernacle. The temple has not yet been built. The tabernacle that they had used in the wilderness is set up right now, it seems, in the city of Nob. And there's a priest there. And they have uh, the 12 bread loaves. I'm not sure how big they were, and they're probably round or flat-ish, but probably pretty big. 12 loaves uh, called the bread of the presence. God has said in Leviticus chapter 24, this is what I want you to do. Basically, one loaf per per tribe in, this, in, the sanctu- in the tabernacle before the Lord as sort of a testimony of God's provision for the people and, and their dependence upon Him. That each, each loaf is, is, is recognizing one tribe, and there they are right before the Lord. And they're set apart in the presence of the Lord. And, and they're then, after they've been there as a symbol, they're to take them when they were placed with new bread, and eat them. Not waste them, but the priests could eat them. But the priests only should eat them because the priests have been set aside as holy in their calling as priests. They weren't just for common people, and that's what it means in the, if you go back to the original passage in 1 Samuel, where it says there's no common bread, there's just this consecrated bread, this set-apart bread. But the priest gives it to David verifying that they have kept themselves pure in a sexual manner only. And they eat it. And there's a lot of ways you could go with this. And what Jesus' point is, but if you think about the basic principle, and you look over in Matthew, the parallel passage uh, account of this in the other Gospels, Jesus emphasizes the mercy of God. That that there are aspects of, of God's character and there are higher principles at play. 
that you can't just take a simple command and say this is how it will always apply. You have to take into context a bigger picture, which includes who God is and what God wants for you and includes mercy, not just justice. That includes forgiveness in the mix. And this is the God that we have who's at work in all of these things. And there's, a, there's more of it too than that. The part of the parallel Jesus seems to be making, especially when you look at the other gospel accounts, uh, but it's even here in our passage today, that he's making a connection between himself, Jesus, and David, the anointed king. That if it's okay for the need of David to, to take precedent over the ceremonial law to meet the needs of his food and basic requirements, right? Not his own whim, but he's on a mission. In fact, if you look at what's happening with David, he talks about being sent by the king. And if you read between the lines, he's not talking about Saul because Saul didn't send him. He's talking about the king of kings. He's talking about the Lord who is sending him, the true king of Israel, that he is sending him. And David has that conviction. I'm on a mission. And so the... The things of God should serve that mission. And Jesus is making this connection, especially as he closes with, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That, that Sabbath rules make a bad God, any kind of rule and law. But the ruler of the Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath, is a good God. And that's Jesus. Right? And he's saying... You don't have a playbook or a rule book. You have me, Jesus. That, that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. That I have come, God in, in the flesh here, to not merely teach you, which he's doing in this moment, right? And he's being gracious to the Pharisees, interacting with them when, when they're obnoxious time and again. And 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 rebellious and resistant. He interacts with them and is gracious to them. But he's saying even more than that, that he, that he has come to provide what we need. That he has come to be the center. You know, we call the Bible the Word of God. And, the, and, and in that Bible, it says that the Word is God. That Jesus is the Word who was with God in the beginning and the Word became flesh. That Jesus in Himself is the Word. That the interaction, the, the, the mediator between us and God is His, his written Word as it, as it is the living Word. Jesus. In other words, the only way you're ever going to understand the Bible correctly in its entirety or any part of it is to come through Jesus. To bring Jesus into the picture. To bring Jesus into your interpretation as Jesus himself is doing here in this question about the Sabbath where he's basically saying, I can see where you're coming from. It appears unlawful. Like what David did appeared unlawful. But let me tell you something. I wrote the law. And it's okay. And we have a choice to make. Are we going to believe that? Are we going to believe this one is the good God. In other words, our hope and understanding the Bible 
is not in knowing the original languages and, and in reading it every day and everything, which is good. Don't hear me saying that's not good, right? Our hope is relational. A connection with Jesus that only comes as we believe He is who He says He is. As we see Him do the good things that He does. As we see Him die on the cross to take away our sin after having lived perfectly to take our place. Rising victorious over the grave. Ascending to the right hand of the Father and then sending His Spirit that we would be connected to Him. In union with Him. And now coming to His Word, submissive to all of those things, connected to Him, we can understand how to understand that we would receive this rescue from him. And he brings it to us, not merely in our own independent Bible study, but in connection with his people. It's a community thing. And so we gather together and and the word is preached and we study together and the Spirit is present in a special way. And we gather in smaller groups to study together and interact with each other. And and I pray that as you do that, if you're involved in it or if you're part of something new or trying to get started, that you would always be wrestling with the text and how it applies to your life today. And that you would always be seeking to understand it through Jesus. What difference does this make? How would this text if it's truly understood, alienate uh, anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus, uh, whoever they may be, not just to make them annoyed, but to say, I'm not understanding it unless I can bring Jesus into it. And that's a lifetime mission. It's not something you're just going to click one time. It's actually a skill. But it's one that God has promised to provide if we would seek him and find our hope Not in the laws, you know, not even in his good gifts, but in the good God that he is, that he has given himself to you. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that you would take on flesh, Lord, that that you would speak and reveal yourself on a written page, that you would reveal yourself through your spirit working inside of us. The Lord, You would use both of those things, Your Word and Your Spirit, in a community of believers that we, we might know how to apply Your Word as a good gift from You, a, a good God. We pray especially, Lord, that the Sabbath would be for us a, a rhythm of rest and a reminder of our own need before You. And that, Lord, You would be our good God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.